Hello and welcome back to another edition of The Alonzo Bed. We're your hosts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we're here on a beautiful night for baseball. The Diamondbacks got a one nothing lead in the top of the fifth, but also a beautiful night for other sports. We had the NBA playing. Sam and I had our NFL fantasy draft, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Um, and of course, the Stanley Cup playoffs are still rolling strong. So with that said, we're going to give you a little rundown of what we're looking at this evening. Um, and then we're just going to jump right into it. So Sam, you want to give us an outline? Yeah, we're going to start by just talking about what's happened in the last week of the NBA playoffs. There's been a lot of exciting action. Uh, we're then going to give you a little recap of our very young fantasy draft. Aaron and I are going to maybe talk about the picks we made, maybe question each other's picks, and maybe we'll we'll ask you guys at the end who has the better mm-hmm. team. Uh, and then, you know, in celebration of week one of the NFL, everybody loves to gamble on the NFL. We're just going to do a quick rapid-fire pick for each game, just our gut against the spread. And then we're going to give you a, a quick rundown of, of how things are shaping up in, in Major League Baseball. It's going to be an exciting, exciting stretch run to the playoffs. And finally, we're going to do a actually a listener-requested segment. Um, and there were two great Hall of Fame players who, uh, who died uh, over the past week, uh, Tom Seaver and Lou Brock. And we're sort of going to do like a combined stat corner retrospective of their careers. So maybe talk about... Uh, what their careers were like, maybe look at some of how some advanced stats look at their career versus how they were valued in their time, uh, and, and and just do a deep dive on, on two legendary players. All right, and with that, uh, let's start with the National Basketball Association. Um, certainly some very interesting games that went on since we came to you last. Um, currently, we stand in the second round of the playoffs. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about where the teams are, and then Sam's going to go through some of the highlights from some of the games that he's seen. So the Celtics took a quick 2 nothing lead last time we came to you. The Raptors came back, tied it 2-2, two to two, but they look like it's over tonight um, as the Celtics are about to pull ahead for a 3-2 lead. Um, the Bucks did salvage a game in overtime against the Heat to avoid being swept, but they still are in a huge bucket in that series, down 3-1. to one. The Lakers came back to win yesterday after losing game one, so now Lakers-Rockets are 1-1. One, one. Um, and then the Clips found a way to drop game two against the Nuggets, and they're staring at a 1-1 one, one series also. And, and game seven is going on right now, so if, if anything interest is, interesting goes on in that game while we're recording, I'll, I'll make sure to call it out. We will be sure to give you the details on that as well. Um, so, Sam, out of all the games that happened since last week, I definitely can think of one that like was – worth talking about do you have any that you wanted to bring up uh well i mean outside of the second round matchups i think it's worth bringing up game seven of the rockets thunder series uh which uh of course the rockets ended up winning in a really close battle uh the final score was uh 104 102 and james hargan sort of closed the game out with a with a huge defensive play not something he's typically known for uh but he gets a huge block on on Lou Dort, who, if the Thunder pull that out, he is the unlikeliest of unlikeliest heroes. Uh, he scored 30 points in the game. I mean, earlier in the series, you literally saw the Rockets just letting him shoot. 
He goes 6 for 12 from 3, uh, 10 for 21 from the field, and add absolutely shut down defense on perhaps the best offensive player in the league in James Hargan. Like, really gave him fits in that Game 7, and Hargan just, he added to the... Repertoire. The, the myth of him being, well, I don't know if... I'm not saying a myth as if I think it's not true of just him not showing up in big playoff games. Now, of course, I said he makes that incredible defensive play to end it, but he goes four for 15 from the field, one for nine from the three-point line. Uh, I will say he made a lot of great passes down the stretch to get the Rockets buckets, but, you know, it wasn't a signature offensive performance. And, you know, you you mentioned James Harden's never done it before. On our last episode, I still disagree with with you on that. I think he's easily good enough to be the best player on a championship team. I think he's one of the best players of his generation in the NBA. But I will say, it's a thing, you know. Yeah, it's definitely a narrative, and I think there was a lot of talk after the game about James Harden's defense. Um, he wanted it to be known that he's playing defense. Russ came out and made a comment like. Y'all haven't been watching James all year. He's been playing defense. And so from that regard, I think that if that narrative is is true, and I'll be honest, I haven't watched enough Rockets games to know whether he's like really turned it into a different defensive key. But if that narrative is true, it's certainly good for his long-term outlook as a superstar in the league. And it's also good for his ability to win a championship because I think that's one of the main knocks. One is that it's really, really hard to – to win a championship when one guy on your team needs the ball that much, just because in the playoffs in the NBA, coaches have gotten really good at making strategies that can neutralize one player entirely. So um, that's not going away in this instance, but what is going away is the knock that your best player, your superstar does not play enough defense to lock down the other team's superstar. And of course we can't expect him to lock down someone like Giannis, but when they run into the Warriors, it'd be nice if he could play solid D on a guy as simple as Clay. Um, but he hasn't really done that in the past. So we'll have to see. The other game that I thought was interesting, and this is... Oh, did you want to say one I more thing? I make one more point about Rockets Thunder. Yeah, definitely. And that's that we've been really hard on Russ when, we, when we've talked about you know his role on this Rockets team, just how bad he's looked in the playoffs for a while now. But there was like maybe a four or five minute stretch. I think it was like late third quarter, early fourth quarter in that game where Harden's out of the game and Russ was just like making assists, getting getting points. Like he kept the Rockets in that game. I, I, I remember watching it and thinking like, this is one of the most like important stretches of the game and, and Russ is really showing up here. Mm-hmm. He was an absolutely absolute dumpster fire in game two of the of the Lakers series, I think he had like seven turnovers yesterday and just sort of played the Rockets out of the game in the fourth quarter. But I, I want to give credit where credit's due just in, in Russ for game seven. Yeah, and I'm not going to go into it too far, but like that's the knock against him, right? Is that sure, there are times when he is hands down the best player on the floor. It looks like he's dominating the boards, the passing lanes, and he's scoring. But he just truly can derail a team in no time. It's really, really hard, I think, to win with a player like that on your team in the playoffs because every game is so calculated. Every game is is so much more of a chess match. That's why the scores go down so much. That's why the game slows down. He makes it hard. And he he seems like a guy that 
coaches can sort of bait into doing dumb stuff. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, you know, just doesn't have the the control of his game to not, you know, run too fast off a turnover and turn it over to not jack or like per- an open shot that they sort of are letting him take because he's not a good shooter. Right, or like from the coach's perspective, switch a slower big guy onto him. He's like, oh, I have the drive every time, but you purposefully switch the player on and you trap him in the lane and he forces a shot up because he just gets that tunnel vision. He puts those blinders on. Um, the other game that I thought, and this is in the second round, although the round is still going, is this second game of the Bucks and Heat, where if if you didn't see it at the end of the game, the Bucks are down three. Chris Middleton gets the ball behind, like two steps behind the three-point line with like three seconds left on the clock or something. And Goran Dragic closes the shot out incredibly well. In my opinion, tremendous defense. He goes straight up, does not leave his feet. Um, Chris Middleton gets the foul call and something that definitely was the talk of the NBA the day that it happened. And in my opinion, was not a foul. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to check it out for yourself. But Middleton ends up hitting the three free throws. And then, of course, the ball doesn't lie because they give a makeup call to Jimmy Butler on the other side of the floor. He hits the free throws and the Heat still win yeah. the game. I mean, Giannis basically like had a hand on Jimmy Butler but did not push off at all. Right. Butler just falls down because he's fading away on the shot. They give him a foul. Both terrible calls, but I feel Both like... Both bad calls. But they, I feel like the game had sort of the right decision because that foul on Middleton should just never be called. Like, Dragic just literally just has hands up, not moving forward into Middleton at all. Middleton yeah. jumps into him. And there's not it, really it, even that much contact, to be honest. Like, no. There's almost phantom. It shouldn't be called in the first half of the game, and it definitely shouldn't be called as the game winner or the game tying play. Like, it just, it was bad. And, and you've seen this happen a lot at the end of at the end of some of these playoff games this year, and this is that the... The refs are sort of giving given these points of emphasis and how they call the games. You know, let sugars have a landing space so we don't get injuries that way. And, and all year they work to like call these fouls more, you know, stringently. But th- they need to have some common sense at the end of the game and just be like, I know this is a point of emphasis, but like you can't let a call like this decide a game. We want to watch. Right. We want to watch all these incredible superstars decide NBA playoff games, not the refs. I agree. Um, so we'll keep our eye on the NBA uh, as we continue. Are there other series you want to talk about? Uh, well, I mean, as far as the Bucks Heat series goes, I mean, the Bucks really seem out of it. They're down 3-1. Very impressively, they pulled out an overtime win in Game 4 after Giannis had to leave with an mm-hmm. ankle injury. Uh, I mean, if Giannis isn't coming back full strength, I don't see them having any chance no, to there's come no back way. here, but... But Giannis was was really really good before he got hurt. Um, the the other interesting series I think is is the Raptors Celtics series, where uh, the Celtics you know as you said took this two zero lead. They were looking really good, but of course the Raptors were down two zero in the Eastern Conference Finals mm-hmm. last year and ended up the NBA champions. So they 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 were resilient, had an incredible Game Three win on a. OG Ananobi buzzer beating three when they're an amazing shot, an amazing shot. Yeah, and 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 one incredible part about that play is Kyle Lowry is inbounding the ball over Taco Fall, I think the tallest player in the NBA, throws a cross court perfect pass into Ananobi's hands 
because there's only half a second when the play starts. So, like, Ananobi doesn't have time to catch off body and then come up and shoot. Like, he needed to just catch and go up. Right into his hands, goes up, makes the three. Incredibly drawn-up play by Mm -hmm. Nick Nurse to get that open three. I mean, that like, how do you give up an open three when you're the Celtics there? But they sort of, they don't expect Ananobi to be the one shooting there. Uh, And, yeah, Kyle Lowry, just incredible incredibly smart player that he is just makes the perfect pass and awesome. great play another one that uh, if you didn't it, if you didn't see it i urge you to google like og and anubi game-winning shots uh it's it's pretty amazing yeah it's 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 a really awesome play and you know the 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 celtics ended up blowing out the raptors in game five today but i'm i'm not counting the raptors out they're the champions I think that's the right call. And uh, with that, let's talk a little bit about our fantasy draft, Sam. So um, Sam and I are in a fantasy league with some other uh, students here at Princeton. And um, I think historically, as is no surprise to our listeners, um, I've been the superior fantasy player. Uh, My teams are consistently tremendous, while Sam consistently is a low finisher in the league. That's not Well, (laughs) I'd say I'm more of a hot variance finisher. (laughs) My first year, I, I, I ended up losing the league, actually. It was, it was quite embarrassing, and as, as a punishment, I had to wear an, an orange fedora. Not just an orange fedora, season. like a beautiful neon orange. And not just around <laughs> campus. Don't forget, you wore it out to New Brunswick that one time. That, that and is then true. conveniently, um, and I'm using air quotes here, lost it in New Brunswick conveniently. <laughs> I have a little too much to drink that, la- that night in New Brunswick. I, I don't know uh-huh. what happened to it. Um, but but if you won't remember year two, I had far and away the best team. I think averaged the most points per game of any team in the history of our league. Of course, I unluckily lost in the semifinals of the playoffs, but that was just an absolute juggernaut of a team. Yeah, I mean, you've told me that many times, but in my opinion, that team overperformed all season. And then, of course, <laughs> we, we take a look back to last season where um, – where you had the second fewest points in the league, and, and luckily, but ended up, what was my record, know? Sam? That's that's the thing is there's all these guys in the league talking about overall points, but I'm over here talking about W's and L's. Okay, I'm talking about wins and I'm talking about losses, <laughs> and I'm a guy who who knows how to get the job done. That's true. You're you're just a clutch <laughs> manager. That's true. So let's go yeah. through our lineup, Sam. We'll go position by position. We'll say who we got, um, and we'll let the listeners decide. Sounds good. Uh, so should we? Let's start with our uh, with our running backs because both of us took running backs in the. In the and actually, round. I drafted one pick before Sam, and I think this is the interesting discussion. I took Nick Chubb um, specifically because at the eighth, at the eighth pick. pick, which is a little high. That's a big of a reach. It's a reach, a reach, but I don't I don't have the option to take him in my next pick. Like he's definitely gone. So I basically yeah. have the option of him. Clyde Edwards Hilaire or Joe Mixon. That's essentially the options that I was left. Or Josh Jacobs or Austin Or Eckler. Josh Jacobs or Austin yeah. Eckler. But in my opinion, Chubb is the best running back out of all of those. Certainly Edwards Hilaire, who Sam took one pick after me, has the highest ceiling. He's your rookie running back out of LSU. He catches the ball quite well. He was just a juggernaut um, at Louisiana State. And he's just in the Chiefs' and he's in the offense, Chiefs offense I mean, which is tremendous. Andy Reid yeah. makes fantasy running backs gods. 
and he and he doesn't have sort of a clear timeshare situation. He he, he seems like he's going to be the well, back. but but it, that... but it is clear that he's sharing time in week one. Which if it's just week one, like makes that pick amazing. But my feeling is that the way Andy Reid runs his offense, he's going to have him sharing touches like through at least week six. Yeah, it could hurt me. And but that's the thing that worries me a bit about Nick Chubb, and that's that. Kareem Hunt's in, in Cleveland too. and But we already you know. saw the effect of Kareem Hunt in Cleveland. What it does is it limits Chubb's receiving upside, which, which makes it hard for him to put up solid RB1 numbers, but he still gets all of the red zone touches effectively. And he still is a very good runner, and he still takes some check downs yeah. from... Um, from Mayfield. So at the end of the day, their line is pretty good. I felt that he's the most talented of any of these guys. Um, and so I went with him. I'll agree with you there. I'll but I do understand the Edwards Hilaire. That's the other guy I would have taken because his upside is just tremendous. Even if he's starting by week four, it's like he could be RB1 from that time out in that offense. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I was fist bumping. Yeah. I take I yeah. So. Um, at RB number two, I have Todd Gurley, a guy who I am actually very high on this season. I see a huge year from Gurley coming. Sam, who did you take? I took Joe Mixon with my second round pick, and I thought I was I was really quite fortunate to get him get him there at the uh, the sixteenth pick, and ended up with a pretty good one two punch. At Definitely, right and I really like the way that's looking for you. If if you hadn't taken Mixon the pick before me, as I mentioned while we were drafting. That would have been my pick. But since you took Mixon yeah. there, I had to take Julio Jones, who has just about the highest floor. You, Michael Thomas may be a slightly higher floor, but just about the highest floor in fantasy. And at my wide receiver one, I am prioritizing floor over ceiling just a hair because if you just get a really consistent receiver in a PPR league, like you're good for 15 points a game all the time. Yeah, and my first receiver was my third-round pick, Allen Robinson, uh, who, you know, had a really good season last year, but that was sort of despite the garbage-fire quarterback situation of Mitch Trubisky. Uh, he was named the starter again, but Nick Foles is now the backup. And sort of my view of this is Robinson was already really good when Trubisky was bad last year. So Trubisky's either going to be better or he's going to be bad again and Foles is going to become the starter pretty fast if he if he sucks right away so my thought is basically there's gonna be a better qb situation somehow this year so he could be even higher upside when he was already like a top 10 to 15 receiver yeah i told you in the draft that i didn't like this pick and i still don't and that's for a couple reasons one is i was kind of tongue-in-cheek saying but this is true that it is certainly not a foregone conclusion that the bears play their best quarterback all season like They've done some weird stuff over the last couple of years, and for, they could easily play Trubisky at the level that he played last year or even a hair lower for the whole season, and I wouldn't be surprised. Um, that scares me. The other thing that scares me is just he had a good season last season, but like unproven wide receivers like this are kind of volatile. Like He doesn't have a pedigree. He doesn't have a track record. And so for me – the way I draft, I personally want a little bit more safety in my wide receiver one. Um, but certainly Robinson has the upside to be, you know, a top 10 or 12 receiver, which makes him a good wide receiver one for you, I think. 
Yeah, obviously Julio is better to have there. Uh, but I, but you know, I can I didn't get a guy in the second round. Uh, my second receiver is Robert Woods, who I took in the fourth round. He was on my team also last year. Had terrible luck as far as touchdowns went. Just barely scored them, but had a couple games where he had like 15 catches, and like sometimes like Goff will just lock on yeah. him like yeah, every that's play true. for a game. And, and games like that can can win a week for you. And I'm hoping there's some regression to the mean in terms of actually scoring a few more touchdowns. Uh, and at the end of the day, like I found him frustrating for a lot of the last season, but he still ended as like a top you know 20 receiver. Like so, I think the floor is pretty high on him. Yeah, and as as you know, if you hadn't taken him where you did, I would have taken him. I I really like Robert Woods, but my concern with him is they have so many receivers. They have Cooper Cup. At least they got rid of Brandon Cooks, but. Um, they have, well, I guess he was gone last year too, but they have, um, Cooper cup. They like to throw to Higby. Um, I, I like him. I think he could be very good, but he's got some, he's got some bust upside as does the guy that I took because I was left in kind of a sticky situation for my WR two. I took Stefan Diggs, Um, and I, I maybe reach for him by five or six picks, but my feeling on Stefan Diggs is there's no middle ground. He's going to suck. Like, he's going to be really bad in Buffalo. Or he's going to be a monster like he was two years ago um, in Minnesota. So um, I'll take him here. I'll take some wide receivers to back him up uh, in the pen. And I'll reach for a tight end, which we'll talk about in a second, so that I make sure that I lock down that tight end position with solid scoring. Because for me, if you've got to get – that receiving trio in a good place you're going to take a high upside guy like Stefan Diggs so I tried my best to do that all right who'd you get at quarterback quarterback, I have Deshaun Watson a guy who got taken fifth in quarterbacks um which I thought was kind of disrespectful a bit behind 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 Mahomes and Jackson which is a-okay yeah behind Russ which I think is a toss-up I really like Russ. I have him in a different league, but I think that's a toss-up. And then Jonas took Kyler Murray, which is nuts. Yeah, I'd take Deshaun over Kyler Murray so, for sure. I like Deshaun. Uh, Who do you got? I uh, I ended up going with uh, with Tom Brady, and I sort of felt like once you you didn't get one of the guys you named or like Dak Prescott. Oh, sorry, Dak. It was Dak. Kyler didn't go in front of him, but Dak did go in front of him. Oh yeah, it was Dak. Okay, yeah. So once once you don't get one of the guys you named, including Kyler or Dak, there's sort of a big drop off in quarterback because uh, like it's guys who don't sort of have the combo of rushing and passing that those guys have. Uh, but I like Brady in terms of upside, basically just because that Tampa Bay offense just... So many weapons. They just they just pass so much. They have so many weapons. I mean, literally, Jameis Winston, who is terrible, was the fifth fantasy quarterback last year. You're telling me Tom Brady yeah. can't do that? Yeah, I you reached for him, and when you took him, I was just shocked because you know the way that drafts go is like, there's rhythm, like, so a couple guys take a quarterback, and then, like, you get a couple rounds until the next tier. And I thought you maybe jumped on him a little early, but I don't mind the logic. Now, my personal opinion is that Tom, at this point, can't throw 30 yards. So he's going to need a lot of yards after catch from some of his guys to be extremely useful. But 
he obviously knows how to run an offense. He has so many weapons. Are you kidding me? He has Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. He's got Rob Gronkowski, who, don't fool yourself, is going to be fine this year. Like, he's going to be totally fine. And now he's got Leonard Fournette um, and uh, Jones in the backfield. And that's a pretty solid combination. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think, you know, it. he didn't – he looked like he was declining a bit last year, so there is some worry with the pick. Like, it could be a disaster. But there's also, you know, a guy that I'm, you know, I know is going to have a good year. I feel comfortable picking him up on the mm-hmm. waiver wire later if things go wrong. So I'm not going to say who that is. But, uh, so, but I, I'm not worried. So at tight end, like I said, I wanted to get a higher <laughs> tier guy. So. There's really two tiers of tight end that are like really solid. Um, there's Travis Kelsey and uh, George Kittle in the top tier. And then you have Zach Ertz is who I ended up with. Mark Andrews um, and one other guy in your second tier who I can't really remember. Um, but Zach Ertz was the last one left from that tier when I took him. Um, I thought I was getting a decent value and a good time in the draft. It kind of uh, helps with Stefan Diggs' unpredictability. Um, is Philly's offense going to be quite as good as it was last year? Probably not, in my opinion. Um, but I think he's a good pick here. I like having a little bit of certainty at tight end because I've played the waiver wire for a while, and it, it's not fun. Yeah, I I'll agree that you want some certainty at tight end, and I found that in Chris Herndon. How? Um, Let, let's let's tell the well, listeners about our side bet here. Oh, uh, we have a side bet that Chris Herndon will be a top eight fantasy tight end this year. Um, insane. I say he insane. will be on total points. Says he won't insane. Um, Chris Herndon, a guy who halfway through his rookie season had, was emerging as a as a young star tight end in this league, was clearly Sam Darnold's favorite target they had a connection you could see it basically missed the entirety of last season with a combination of a suspension and a hamstring injury but he's back this year all all the people are raving about the plays he's making in camp you know it, it appears the connection with sam's back and if he just continues what he's doing his rookie season that's we're, we're gonna see top eight production touchdowns targets Catches, yards after the catch. It's all going to be there. All right, so let's uh, very quickly uh, – let's just skip defense and kicker because, like, I punted those to the end like most people. Yeah. But let's – Maybe we – Let's talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. all yeah. of our, like, remaining pieces, um, and then we'll each read them out, and then if there's someone we want to talk about on either player's team, we can do so. How's that sound? Sounds so good. I've got Leonard Fournette, on Johnson, Emmanuel Sanders, CeeDee Lamb, Rob Gronkowski – the rookie Justin Jefferson out of Minnesota, Justin Jackson, the handcuff uh, for Eckler in Los Angeles, Eric Ebron, who was my biggest sleeper pick. Um, and then I took Joe Burrow, who's, you know, a roster spot that I would. You have three tight ends. I do because I couldn't pass up the value on Eric Ebron. I do plan on trading him to you or some other schmo who didn't take a real tight end in about week three. Why, why would I need Because him? Herndon's a trash can. He's a moving trash can. Um, who do you have to fill out your flex and bench positions? 
Okay, I, I have Michael Gallup, uh, Devin Singletary, Brandon Cooks, who you were moaning when I took him one pick ahead of you. Brandon Cooks, uh, I like like better than any of these guys we're going to name. I'm just super high on him this year. I think he becomes their wide receiver one immediately. Uh, Daryl Henderson Jr., who has some upside in terms of being able to get a, a, a lot of carries in, in the Rams' backfield, which would be good. Uh, Brashad Perriman, Mike Williams, Daryl Williams as my handcuff to, to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, uh, my backup QB's Big Ben, who I actually think could have a bit of a bounce-back season after being out most of last season, and then Michael Pittman Jr. I like, I like both of our benches. I think we both did things to kind of round our team out. A guy I'm kind of excited about, um, a guy I'm worried about is Leonard Fournette. A guy I'm excited about is C.D. Lamb. Um, I really think he could be a monster this year, especially if Dak passes as well as he did last year. The guy uh, just seems to have a lot of skills, um, a lot of catch uh, ability, and I could very well see him tearing through um, some defenses in the NFL. So I'm definitely keeping my eye on him. I actually, I actually really liked your Fournette pick. Because I got him really late, really I, I, late. You got him, you got him really late, and I like. I know Tampa Bay doesn't run that much, but like Ronald Jones kind of sucks. So, like Fournette could become the main guy pretty fast, and like that's an offense that's going to score a lot of points. So like they're going to be touchdowns to be had. And he also has a uh, good catching ability. And Tom can't throw the ball that far. So I, I really like Leonard Fournette. And he actually, of all the guys I mentioned, was my first pick in that list, um, which was still pretty late in the draft. But ESPN doesn't really like him. They haven't projected at 6.5 points compared to on Johnson at 11.5 next week. But we'll just have to see. I really think by week two or three, Leonard Fournette could be RB2 territory, um, which is a nice upside to help offset Gurley, who, as I mentioned, I'm really high on. But we have to admit that Atlanta's line has been pretty bad, and Gurley could have a really hard time running the ball in Atlanta, as some other guys who've gone there have had, a.k.a. Devontae Freeman. Yes, as far as my picks go, I, I like the upside of my Brandon Cooks pick. I really like Michael Gallup. I mean, he was basically pr- producing like on a per-game basis the same as Amari Cooper last year, and Amari Cooper went way earlier in the draft. Like they were really like receiver one A and one B for, for yeah, that I like class that here. Too. Uh, so I, I think he'll probably start the season as my flex. Um, I don't love my running back depth. If Clive Edwards Hilaire uh, isn't good or Joe Mixon gets yeah. hurt, uh, I mean I do have the handcuff for handcuff for Clive. But um, but it's not a it's not a safe yeah. handcuff. You're not like excited about Daryl Williams the way you're excited about Clyde Edwards Hilaire in that offense, right? Because he he yeah, did take it, a lot of touches exactly. last year and it wasn't that productive for him. Yeah, so well, I think if my running backs, if my two running backs can like stay good and healthy, I'll right. be good. But my depth's not great. All right. Well, with that, let's move over to some real football news. And Sam, why don't you hit us with some of the lines week one or some of the over unders, whatever you're feeling. And we'll give our opinions. All right, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give lines. Uh, don't listen to our bets. I don't. I mean, I follow the NFL fairly closely. I know a lot of the players, but I don't. I don't know who's who's better. Yeah, this is just for fun. I would say Sam and I are not tremendous football betters. Um, so do not take this and and put your life savings on these bets. But we're gonna give you our best our best guesses, and we'll log back on after week one and see how wrong we were. 
All right, so Texans, Chiefs. The Chiefs are nine-point favorites Thursday night to open the season. Where are you going? I like the Texans to cover that. Yeah, me too. I just think it's going to be week one. It's going to be a weird game. Like a... Deshaun's, Deshaun's still good. He's really right? good. And, I again, I'm high on Cooks. Will Fuller, I think, running out of a, maybe a, a wide receiver two instead of a slot position could be a benefit. And then – Duke Johnson yeah. is a tool, is a weapon for them. He's not a great runner, but he's he could be a weapon for them. Uh, David Johnson, David nine, Johnson, sorry. Yeah, yeah, N- nine points just feels like an awful. It's, loss it's ten points basically. Honestly, I, I'm saying I don't know what I'm talking about, and now I'm already now, talking myself. Yeah, he's about to make his bet. All right, let's hear another line before you put one on DraftKings. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles are six point favorites against the Washington Football Team. Mm, I like the Eagles to cover that. The, the Redskins are bad. Uh, I do too. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the Eagles. Uh, the Baltimore Ravens are eight point favorites against the Cleveland Browns. That's kind of a tough game. Um, I'll take the Ravens. The Browns just suck. Like let's just get down to dirt. The thing is, is like everyone's so hyped about the Browns they're, again. Like they have to lay a huge yeah. There's just one. it would be franchise like defining if they yeah. play well in Week One. Yeah, uh, the Colts are eight point favorites against the Jaguars. I don't see why the Jags are that much worse than they were last year besides for losing Fournette. I guess their running yeah, back situation is pretty undetermined now, but like I know the I know people are like the Colts, but like I'm not. I'd like I'd like to see them like be good before like I buy right. the hype. So I, I'm gonna call that game being That's what I wouldn't play, but I like the Jags there. Yeah. Uh the Buffalo Bills are six and a half point favorites against my New York Jets. Uh, pass. I'm I'm going okay. with the Jets. They're going to win the game outright. Okay. So six and a half points is That's a an steal. easy one. Uh, the Patriots are six and a half point favorites against the Dolphins. <laughs> oh man, who who have named uh, Fitzpatrick their Week One starter? As he should be, all's right in the world. Um, I just don't know, like the page, the Mar- the Marlins, the Dolphins gave him headaches last year. At the end of the season, they got worse, but I'll still take the Pats here. I'm going Pats because it'll be so Patriots for like Brady to leave. Like everyone thinks, like it's the right. end of an era, and they just come on and win by right. thirty points. Yeah, with I- I'm with you. I'll take the Pats there. Um. The Lions are three-point favorites on the Bears. I'll take the Bears. That's basically you're guessing like who wins the game outright. Yeah, I was also going to go Bears there. I, I, I don't see how the Lions are. A I, it's it's um, weird. Both teams are bad. The Seattle Seahawks are one and a half point favorites over the Falcons. Seems close. The Falcons. Yeah, are it's home. just weird because like. I'm not sure how hard the Seahawks offense is going to fire this year. I'm a, kind of a Chris Carson hater, um, but I still have to take the Seahawks there. I think their D is much improved, um, although they lose to Davion Clowney. And they got a they got a nut job in Jamal Adams yeah. over there. I'll I'll take the Hawks <laughs> to cover one and a half. I'll take the Hawks too. Uh, the Vikings are two and a half point favorites over the Packers. I'll take the Packers outright in that game. Uh, I'll, I'll take oh, the that's our first disagreement. Yeah. Uh, Raiders are three and a half point favorites over the Panthers. Away favorites. 
I just really hate the Raiders. I just really don't think they're good. Uh, I'll take the Panthers. Take I don't feel Raiders. super confident about that one. I, I definitely wouldn't play that game. Uh, Chargers, three and a half point favorites over the Bengals. Yeah, I'll take the Chargers there. Away I think favorite. the Bengals. I'm taking the Bengals. I think the, I'm taking the Bengals. Joey Burrows is just gonna he's just gonna come out and fire, and Joe Mixon's probably gonna put up like forty five fans. I think points. the Bengals offense could look really good by the end of the season, but I definitely think it's gonna take time. Um between Mixon and Burrow and and their younger wide receivers, I know AJ Green's still out there, but I don't see him factoring in as much this year. I think it's gonna take some time, so I'll I'll take the Vikings there. Or not the Vikings, um, sorry. Yeah. Chargers. Chargers. Um, the 49ers are seven-point favorites over your Arizona Well, that's Cardinals. an easy one. You just slam the Cardinals because they're going to win that game outright. Okay. The Niners suck. They got lucky last year, and all Bay Area sports fans can go to hell. You know what? I'm actually going to take that the Cardinals line there. I could see you know, the 49ers having like a little post-hype letdown. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And and Kyler just you know doing some new stuff that he he worked on the off season and just like catching the 49ers defense slipping slipping. Yeah. Uh, Saints three and a half versus the Bucks. I'll take the Saints. I just think they're a better team. Yeah, this is a hard one. I really, I'm really curious how the Bucks. Are yeah, this is a good matchup, Week One. This is probably the game I've heard so far that I'm most interested in. I'll go with the Saints as well, just because like they're a yeah, machine. Agreed. And like, if if there's some like advantage to continuity in the off season this year because of all the virtual meetings and stuff, I mean the Saints are going to have a big advantage right, as far as right. that goes. Um. Cowboys are, are three-point away favorites over the Rams. Um, I'll take the Rams to cover at home. That's tough. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the Rams as well. I, I think Sean McVay is too good of a coach to not have sort of come away from last year with a yeah. new plan. Like, he, he was so good two years ago, the league adjusted – but I, I, I think he's he's a good enough coach that he's gonna figure out the 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 counter adjustment agree. and and maybe it's gonna take and maybe really have a great first few weeks yeah, for agree. that offense. Um. Okay, and then the two Monday night games are uh, the Steelers are five and a half point favorites against the Giants. Uh, away favorites. I'll take the Giants. I think I never thought I'd say that, but the Steelers aren't that good. Yeah, it's surprising that line. Um, that's a tough one. I guess I'll also take the Giants. And then the the Titans and Broncos are pick them. Really? Bron- Broncos at home. I'll take the Titans. I will too. Um, I mean, they were, yeah, they weren't that good, but they were just in the AFC Championship. Right. Like, I, I don't And they didn't lose much. Maybe improve their line. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's a little uh, little interesting pick We will take a look at how that ends up next week. Yeah. I, I'm not going to promise we're going to do that every week. But, but we'll keep you up to date on football news as, as it comes yeah. on. 
Um, and now we yeah. got to go to our bread and butter here, which is the MLB. And we're just going to do a quick whip around. Sam, if anything catches your eye, holler at me. Um, in the last week, we've seen the Rays go on a tear. They're eight and two in their last 10. In that time frame, the Blue Jays have jumped over the Yankees actually by a game um, in the division. And they're both playing close to 500 ball. The White Sox and Indians are duking it out at the top of that division, separated by a half a game, but the Twins are right there at one game, and they're all playing good baseball. Um, the A's continue to hold a three-and-a-half game lead on the Astros, who neither of whom are playing super hot right now. Um, the Angels and Mariners are both pushing, but it is likely too late for both of them. We'll have to see. In the n- Can I ask yeah. you something? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Am I crazy to say – the Mariners could steal that second wild card from the Yankees. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's like a possibility. Yeah. And that's crazy it's to say. It's possible. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but like, can you imagine saying that? Yeah, that would just ago? be a crazy sentence three weeks ago. But like the the Yankees, it's just like they're decimated, yeah. and they they really haven't looked like a good baseball team for quite some time. Like three weeks, yeah. Um, and the Mariners are they're, they're hot. hot and they're I mean, young and they're fun. Yeah, but honestly, and and the Angels, like you said, have also since since we said last podcast they were, you know, they were due to be like they were playing better than the record said. They've won five in a row. Seven of their last ten, they're, and they're looking all right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's enough to get them back yeah, into it, but it, which is a bummer. I we need we need Trout in the World we, Series. You know, we need crazy? it. Like, how crazy would it be if at the beginning of the season you're like, Mike Trout's not going to get be hurt and be just as good as usual. Andrew Rendon's going to be just as good as usual. Dylan Bundy and Andrew Heaney are both going to be top ten in pitcher war. In the and league. the Angels are not going to make the playoffs. And the Angels are, and the Angels aren't even in contention for the eighth. Spot. It's insane. It's truly insane. Yeah. Well, with that, we'll flip to the National League, where the Braves hold a two-game lead on the Phillies, but it is slowly dwindling thanks to a nice run by the Phillies here, who've won seven of their last ten. Um, the Cubs and Cardinals continue to battle it out at the top of the NL Central, separated by a game and a half with the Cubs on top right now. Brewers and Reds trailed out by four and five games, respectively. In the NL West, the Dodgers just keep rolling. They're seven and three in their last 10, and they're up by five games on the Padres, who are playing good ball themselves. The Rockies have fell, the Giants have fell, and the Diamondbacks are a dumpster fire. The Diamondbacks are the worst team in baseball. Everybody should go. Everybody should get the axe, besides for Mike Hazen. Um, It's been embarrassing to watch, and we don't need to spend time on that, but the uh, National League still is shaping up to be quite the race uh, for those last spots. So we know the Braves, um, Cubs, and Dodgers would be in if the season ended today, as would the Padres, Cardinals, and Phillies. But still, as it stands, the last two spots would go to the Marlins and Rockies. So nothing has changed since our last airing. And, and, if, and if you look at the playoff odds on ESPN, which I'm not sure where they're getting it from, but the Marlins, the Mets... Uh, the Brewers, the Reds, the Rockies, and the Giants all have between 25% and 50% playoff odds. So it's like 
it's a mad dash for all those teams to get the last And it's going to be exciting over these next couple of weeks. Um, we're really looking forward to it. We hope you are too. If you'd like us to cover um, any team in particular or you have questions about players or teams, make sure you reach out to us, thealonzobet at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thealonzobet. Love to hear from our fans. Um, a couple guys who are absolutely on fire right now, Sam. Brandon Belt is just absolutely mashing the ball over the last seven days with an OPS over 2,000, given not so many at-bats because it's a small time frame. A guy who has over 20 at-bats in that time frame, Marcelo Zuna, Mike Trout, and Eugenio Suarez, all with an OPS over 1,500 in that time frame. And then, of course, you got some guys who are just mashing at the plate. Besides Ozuna and Suarez, Duvall's got five bombs in his last seven games, and Acuna's really been turning it up. Hitting 417, yeah. OPS over 2,000 in 12 at bats um, in his last seven games with four I bombs. I think uh, Reese Hoskins also has like eight home runs in his last 13 games. Yeah, Reese has three in his last seven, and he's got, uh, of course, seven in his last 15. So um, that is in all of baseball, second only to a Eugenio Suarez, who's clobbered nine in his last 15 games. These are guys who are getting absolutely so hot right now and most of the time you're not gonna be able to pick them up in your fantasy leagues but make sure you're checking out who's hot because in a short season you gotta get the guy who's hot so be be following your waiver wire we're watching hot players right now um and let me just take a quick second here very quick to shout out ian happ who's having a great great season and who came up switch hitter could play center field could play second base a lot of promise to him a guy i really liked coming up but boy did he struggle Last year, after hitting a leadoff home run to lead off the MLB season last year, was shuttled between AAA and the majors all year long. Couldn't figure it out. But this year, just absolutely raking. 301 with a 654 slugging percentage. He's got 12 out of the yard, nine doubles, and 40 hits all around. So um, this is a guy who it's great to see him do well, and I just wanted to shout him out. So with that quick whip around, and it truly was quick, we'll keep those coming to you. We want to get into our final segment for the day, um, and that is a memorial of sorts, a statistical memorial to two MLB greats who unfortunately passed away this week in Tom Seaver and Lou Brock. Now, Tom- and and uh, but as we introduce the segment, let's note it was a, a segment suggested by a listener. That's true. That is true. Uh, we, got, we got an email asking for the We got an email at thealonzobet at gmail.com if you're wondering where to send your emails. If you want this, uh, yeah. If if you want to hear a segment, you have an idea for one. This is proof. You give us an idea, we're gonna do it for you. If you're a loyal listener, and we are doing it now. Now, Tom Seaver, Sam. Something I was gonna say. This is a man who you never saw pitch, but if I understand Mets fandom properly, he still holds a special place in your heart. Yeah, I mean he's. Like the no question greatest Met of all time. Uh, he's the only Met until recently when Piazza had his number retired. He was the only Met player to have his number retired for a long time. They had managers' numbers retired uh, in, in Casey Stengel and, uh, and Davey Johnson, but they, they never had a, a player's number retired. Um, and, and Tom, well, except for Tom Seaver. Um, and, and Tom Seaver was, he was the franchise, he was terrific Tom. I mean, everything you hear about, you know, being a Mets fan from, you know, my dad, the the older Mets fans I know, it was like, like he was just 
the greatest pitcher they'd ever seen. Uh, you know, in like he had, I think, three Cy Young seasons. Um, I think two Cy Young seasons. Um, but he did uh, have four seasons with a war over eight, for, Sam. He, no, yeah, he did have three Cy Young seasons. Uh, 69, the yep, year the Mets yep, you're won. Right, the, and rookie of the year. Yeah, the year the Mets won the won the World Series where he had a 2-2 ERA, uh, had 18 complete games, 273 innings. Um, in 73, which was a year the Mets made the World Series, uh, he he had a 208 ERA, um, 18 complete games. Uh, in and finally in 75, he won his third Cy Young with the Mets with a 2.38 ERA, 280 innings. Like you just don't mm-hmm. see numbers like this anymore. And I will add, he was uh he was robbed of the Cy Young in 1971, which actually was probably statistically his greatest season ever, where he had a 1.76 ERA, and I think um. The, the NL Cy Young was Fergie Jenkins, who had an ERA a full run higher. But back then, they cared more about wins, and Fergie went 24-13. and 13. And I think that, you know, oftentimes, like the guy we're, we'll talk about next, you can look at an older player's stats, and in today's like understanding of stats, be like, this guy doesn't seem like he was an all-time great. But Seaver's not one of those cases. I mean, right off the bat, what jumps out to the page at you is that he pitched over 200 innings in his first 13 seasons. That's just incredible. He had over 10 complete games in his first 14 seasons, or in his first 10 seasons, I'm sorry. And he consistently had an ERA under three, all but one season for his first 11 or 12 seasons. So this is a guy who, by all sorts of metrics, was a tremendous, tremendous pitcher and his K per nine may look pedestrian, only ever as high as 9.08 in 1971, which is the only mark that would register with us today. But it's important to remember that when he was striking out six and a half batters, seven and a half batters a game for a lot of his career, the league-wide strikeout rate was like three and a half percent or lower for starters. Like he was still doing something that really, or K per nine, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you strikeout rate, I'm giving you K yeah. per nine, but he was doing something that, very, very few pitchers in the league were doing. Um, and it was for these reasons that he was considered and is still considered absolutely dominant in the era that he pitched in. Yeah, and I'll, one thing that that every Mets fan will sort of decry about about Seaver is that they traded him away before the end, end of his career. Everyone wanted him to be a Met for life. Really? They traded him to the yeah, and they traded him to the the Cincinnati Reds in in '77, uh, and he actually had a good, you know, a good not like Mets level, but he had a good, you know, five year stretch with the Reds, and actually threw his only career uh-huh. no hitter with the Reds. Uh, he famously ha- uh, took a perfect game uh, into the ninth inning with the Mets once, and and I think gave up a hit with one out in the ninth. It's a famous Mets game. I forget. I'm sure my if I asked my dad, he would know the name of the guy who got the hit. Like that was, you know, I, every every New York kid in the, you know, was yeah. watching that game or listening on the radio and and had their hearts broken when he gave up the hit. I think actually Steve Cohen just like wrote a tribute to Seaver, like referencing that. And game. in '92, Sam Tom Seaver was inducted into the Hall of Fame with what was at the time the highest 
induction percentage of all time. Like only one person yeah. left them off their ballots. Um, and it was a fitting culmination to a pitcher who truly dominated the 70s, um, late 60s, early 70s. But if you think about one pitcher in the 70s, it's tough because in the 60s, you have Gibson and Koufax. Um, and in the 50s and 40s, you have a couple other huge tandems. You have Warren Spahn, you have um, uh, Whitey Ford. But for the 70s, this is the guy and I think it speaks to how dominant he was that he was able to secure the largest percentage of the vote in history at the time he was voted in in 1992. Yeah, and if, and if you just look at uh, at career leaders in pitching war on fan graphs and uh, look for only pitchers who uh, who pitched sort of after World War One, sorry, after World War II, uh, Tom Seaver is solidly in the in the top ten in terms of you know arguably one of the 10 greatest pitching careers of all time. Uh, he he finished with 92.7 career war. The only players in front of him are Clemens, Maddox, Randy Johnson, Nolan Ryan, Burt Blylevin, Gaylord Perry, and Steve All-time greats. Yeah, just, and, you know, Seaver, of course, is also an all-time great, and he actually has a lower ERA than any of those guys in his career. Which so, speaks to efficiency you, and innings. Because war, again, is a counting stat. So the more innings you're able to put up, the higher war you're able to get. And exactly. And, and, and you know, we've also mentioned, uh, like, fielding independent pitching a lot on this on this podcast. This is something, you know, that wasn't thought about at all when Seaver was... was it, wasn't, league, it didn't even but, exist. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at his career FIP, they didn't calculate XFIP back then. Uh it was 3.04. And that's um, marred by many, many no. innings of, of over three and over four at the end of his career because for the first, again, for the first 11 seasons of his career, he only had two seasons over a three-fip, and he had one season under two, which is incredible. Yeah. That I was mean, his 9.1 war season. I mean, that's an all-time great pitcher season, 1971. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's, he's an absolute legend. Um, I think, uh, DeGrom was asked the other day about, uh, the franchise. Yeah. About Tom Seaver and about like being compared to him. And cause I think DeGrom just passed Tom Seaver for the lowest ERA in Mets history. Um, career ERA passed a certain right, number right. of innings. Um, and DeGrom was like, you know, it's an irony put in that category, but he has something like close to 200 complete games for the Mets, and I have like 13. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I'm ever getting close there. Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully DeGrom ends up in the Hall of Fame like like Sieber. Very sadly, he, he, he sort of, he used to be a big figure for the Mets, you know, would come into the booth once a year to do games, would show up at a lot of games. He was around... The Mets a lot. Unfortunately, he sort of had to recede from public life in the in the last few years because of like struggles with dementia as he's gotten older. Um, and he and he died of of complications due to that in COVID. Um, so really sad loss for the Mets organization. Howie Rose, the longtime uh, radio guy for the Mets, um, the Mets had an awesome comeback victory over the Yankees the night after. Seaver died and, and Alonzo hit that walk-off home run. And Howie Rose had, you know, just his partner 
had to do the call because he was just sobbing because like you know he's he's been a Mets mm-hmm. fan since the start like Seaver was the guy to every Mets fan that that lived like he was the franchise like the most important player in the franchise's history and it just it meant so much to him that the Mets would win the night after Seaver's passing uh and and uh, I think a Seaver statue will be up outside City Field starting next season. Yeah, and that's the stuff that really makes the game special. Those moments where a guy is on his job being an announcer, but also is a lifelong fan of the team and is able to experience something like that. Um, that's what we love about sports. So, you know, condolences to Tom Seaver's family and to the whole Mets community. Uh, what a tremendous player. And I hope that we paid him just a little bit of justice to the amazing career that he had tonight. The other guy we wanted to talk about passed away uh, yesterday, um, and that's Lou Brock. And compared to Tom Seaver, Lou Brock is the type of guy who you look at his stats and you say, oh, wow, you know, he's always mentioned as a great. I wasn't, you know, I'm surprised to see what type of player he was. But that's because we evaluate things differently today. He only had one season with a WRC plus over 130. He had two uh, hovering around 125. And the rest of his career, he was 110 to 115. Um, yeah, career 109. Yeah, career 109 WRC plus. So right off the bat, you look at him and, um, you know, it wasn't that great for the beginning part of his career. Um, he K'd at about a 20% clip, which was very high at the time and only walked a little over 5% of the time. He never hit more than 21 home runs in a season. He never drove in more than 76 runs in a season. But Lou Brock was from a different era. And Lou Brock, uh, this was the 60s. Lou Brock played almost his whole career in the 60s. Um, well, he played most of the 70s. Well, he played the whole, played the whole 70s, 70s but that was on the decline. Um, uh, uh, besides 1971, where he posted the 132 WRC+. But he consistently stole... 50 bases, including a year of 118 for the Cardinals in 1974. And there was a quote earlier today on the Cardinals broadcast where they were quoting Lou Brock. And he said, there's nothing more important in baseball than stealing second base because there's no more dangerous spot to be in baseball than first base. Uh, Obviously, today we know that sabermetrically that statement is um, not accurate, really. But at the time, that was conventional wisdom. And there obviously is validity to the statement to some extent. And that's the way Lou Brock saw the game. And he did the, everything he could to help his team win. Um, and for him, that was mostly stealing bases, scoring runs, finding a way to get across the plate. And he did that quite well, scoring over 100 runs six times in his career. So, yeah, and I think an interesting sort of difference for how people thought of Lou Brock offensively is – they not only thought of him as a base stealer, but as a great offensive player uh, when, like, he clearly wasn't by the stats. And I think that's because he's a guy that was batting 300 a few times, batting close to 300 every year. And it felt like, you know, 300 used to be this magic mm-hmm. number. You bat 300, you're a good hitter. But, like, now we understand, like, well, if you're not walking a lot, like, batting 300 is, is great and all, but, like, you really care more about having a high on base percentage, and that's something he didn't really have. Well, and if and you're slugging, if you're slugging in the high three or low four hundreds every year, like he was, with the couple exceptions where he slugged a little over four fifty, like what are all those singles doing? But then, I, I'm not sure WRC plus counts the fact that he singled so many times and stole seconds so many times. 
Well, but that's but that would be included in in the base. That would be metric. included in the base running metric, and you do see a year where he had eleven point two base runs, which is very impressive. Yeah, and they, and he had seventy five base runs for his career, so that is you know creating almost seven seven and a half wins above average for for his career. And if you look at his career WAR, uh, you know it's it's a very respectable forty three, a, a great great career, but that's typically not the type of uh war total that you're going to see getting people into the hall of fame typically you know 60 is sort of like a minimum cutoff so you know definitely a guy who in hall of fame voting benefited from sort of the conventional wisdom of his days you know if someone with his resume were to to go at it now he's probably not getting in but of course that doesn't take away from him being a legendary ball player really and a really important, you know, major league baseball player. That's just sort of the flavor of how the advanced stats today can really say something a bit different about players than than in the past. And 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 as far as single season, you know, his highest WAR total, at least on Fangraphs, was was five point three, and he only had two seasons above five. Yeah, and I think that you know. It, it does say a lot about being able to retroactively analyze players like this, who obviously you and I, Sam, never saw play. But I am still very inclined to take these players in the era that they were playing in. Because, yes, we don't know if Lou Brock could have had a WRC Plus consistently over 140 in his career. But he was never asked to be the type of ball player that would have that, you know? Um, what he was asked for by his team was, was, you know, hit as many singles as possible. You know, people didn't think about walking the same way. So just hit as many singles as possible and then take second base. And he did that better than anybody in his time. Second all-time in steals yeah, and was first all-time till Ricky Henderson took the, took the nod. So um, I, you know, I agree with you. A lot of these stats do look underwhelming on paper, but it's important to contextualize these things, which I think we've done here. So, um, and, and I think you, I think you do make a really good point, Aaron, which is that, you know, players, you know, if a player's goal wasn't to be the best baseball player he could be, his goal was to be what the best best baseball player was as it was judged at the time, which was by these archaic stats that don't really correlate to being a good Well, and also I feel like um, situational and and kind of like lineup pieces were so much more important. There was this idea that if you're the leadoff hitter, you need to go get a base hit and only a base hit. You know, don't waste your time trying to hit doubles, uh, stuff like that. So, um it, it, it is just that they didn't know what being the best baseball player looked like, really. Um, yeah, exactly. But but let's say Lou Brock, you know, got introduced to a hitting coach that emphasized the launch angle. Maybe he starts hitting 30 Yeah, maybe he's a consistent like, 30 home run hitter. And instead of knowing him as a speedster, we know him as a guy who ended with 350, 400, 500 home runs. You just never know. Um, but yeah. that's what makes it fun. And also... You know, none of this, uh, none of these caveats are to take away from the amazing, amazing career of Lou Brock and the amazing service that he's paid to the MLB um, since his playing days ended. Um, they're just our way of tying it all into the stat corner and giving you guys a way to appreciate some of these older players. So, um, as we said with Tom Seaver, our condolences to the Brock family and those uh, who were close to him. By all accounts, truly a wonderful ambassador for the game. So. Um, I'm glad we were able to take this time, Sam, to remember two all-time greats in the game. 
Um, I hope we don't have to do it too much more this year. I think 2020 has been rough enough as is. But as always, we will continue to bring you guys news. We'll continue to tie it in with some of these advanced metrics, give you our opinions, and bring you fun things like our fantasy draft. So um, thanks for stopping by with us here tonight. For the Alonzo Bet, we're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. Have a good night. Have a great week, guys. Yeah.